Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Hey, um, I need to take care of a little housekeeping for just a second before we get into the message, and, and it's this. Um, we, we told you we're going to keep you uh, kind of in the loop as this goes forward. Uh, the elders made the decision to explore... Um, I know there's some people out there that have been saying, you know, we're selling our middle and part property. No decision has been made about that, so I just want to make sure everybody's clear on that. Um, the church would vote on that before that kind of decision was made, but we, we're exploring it. We're looking into it. We're investigating. And so uh, we've had a, uh, a group uh, who has come and formally said they're interested, and they asked for permission to get their own appraisal done of the property, have it surveyed, so that may be going on over there, but that's kind of the latest development uh, related to our other, our other campus uh, over at Midland Park, and I just wanted to let you know that, so you can continue to pray, asking that the Lord's will would be done, that we would hear his voice and follow him, uh, is what we're, what we're wanting to do uh, in that matter, so um, just keep us prayed up in that, and we'll keep you up to date with the latest things that we know. Now, this morning, we are returning to our uh, study of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, it'll take you about 13 minutes. We've been talking about the Sermon on the Mount since September of 2022, and it's because it is packed. I mean, it's just filled. I think it uh, by far is the the, the most incredible sermon ever delivered, uh, the greatest talk ever given that came uh, out of, uh, you know, a, a human mouth. Um, St. Augustine, the great bishop of North Africa, uh, centuries ago, uh, he made this statement about the Sermon on the Mount. He said, it's a perfect standard for Christian life. And in the Sermon on the Mount, we really get to see just how all-encompassing this message from Jesus is. He brings this message very, very differently uh, than the way teachers of the law in his day did. He presented God very differently. He presents even the law of God, the teachings, uh, the commands of God very, very differently than, than others in his day. Because if you notice, as we've gone through, Jesus begins his instruction about life in the kingdom of God, not based on commands, but on character. The development of human character. And we've said uh, along and along through this journey is that until we understand the why of that, until we get to the place where we fully understand why Jesus went at it that way, we'll never grasp all that he's trying to teach us here. And uh, we also pointed out that the gospel that Jesus came to bring, a lot of people talk about the gospel in our day. What, what, what is it? Jesus basically taught that the gospel is not like so many teach, that it's like the minimal entrance requirements to get into heaven. It's not what Jesus taught. Jesus, Jesus taught that the, the, the gospel, the good news, is that the kingdom of God is available. It's available to, to anyone, any everyday, ordinary human being, anybody who would be willing to repent of thinking they can figure it out and do it their own way and believe in Jesus and trust in Jesus and his his life and, and his teaching. 
And I want to just do kind of a quick review back into that, just to, just to remind us that these are the words of Jesus, that it's truly the teaching of Jesus. So if you want to open your Bibles, we're going to jump back to Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, we're going to read um, a couple of verses. Uh, this is before, just before the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, it says, from that time Jesus began to preach. And so this is Jesus launching his preaching public ministry. And this is how he began it, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the whole focus of Jesus' ministry, his preaching, teaching ministries, the kingdom of heaven. Jump down to verse 23. It says, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics. He healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing these crowds, he went up on the mountain. This is where we get that this was a sermon on the mount. He went up the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus immediately in this sermon begins going right to his teaching about the kingdom of heaven, the, the, the kingdom of God. And we need to be captured by, by that reality. And so Matthews chapter 5, 6, and 7 contain this sermon. Now what I want us to do today is I want us to look at a very small portion, but quite frankly a very controversial part of that, this sermon for our day. The, the topic is a very controversial topic. And we've got to address it. We've got to live in this. Uh, but before we read the, that passage from Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, I want to remind you of something that Jesus said about himself. It's recorded in the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John, verse 9. Jesus said this about himself. He said, I am the gate. All who come in through me will be saved. What Jesus is telling us here in John 10 is that the way to salvation that leads to eternal life, that leads to life in the kingdom of God, can only be found in him. There's no other way. You can't work your way into it. All you can do is come to Jesus. And Jesus said that you do that, remember, through repentance and belief in him. And that's important that you hold on to this verse from John chapter 10 of what Jesus said about himself when we look at Matthew chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. And remember, we've been saying this all throughout this study, that context is so important that if you just yank these two verses that we're about to read out of their context, you can make all kinds of things up about them. But in the context of what Jesus is teaching, he's building in his message verse by verse idea upon idea topic about topic and how to live in the kingdom of god that's what this message is about and so jesus gets to this place in his message and that we know of as matthew 7 13 it says enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Now, this is the word of the Lord. Now, this picture of a narrow gate touches deeply into kind of a, a cultural uproar 
about religion in general, but very specifically in our nation about Christianity. There are a lot of people, a lot of thinking people, uh, who have concerns about the ideas presented here in Matthew 7, 13 through 14. And they, they say things like this about Christianity. They say Christianity, you know, calls certain beliefs wrong. And it calls certain behaviors immoral. And therefore, they continue, they surmise that that impinges on human freedom. It keeps people from being free and so about what they think. And furthermore, Christians believe that they know the absolute truth. Therefore, they believe all people who disagree with them are wrong, and not just wrong, but are condemned of God. A lot of people in our culture are concerned about that line of thinking. And so their, their thought kind of continues. Therefore, Christians have to be intolerant to atheists or agnostics or people of other religions and even different kinds of Christians like Catholics versus Protestants and liberals versus conservatives and Baptists against everybody else is what it feels like some days, you know? And in this framework, the thinking continues that having humility requires giving up claims of exclusive truth because it affirms like, you know, in, in our culture that our culture says nobody can really know what's true. Instead, they say, you know, you got to have your truth. I got to have my truth. Nobody really knows. And so because of that, nobody's in a position to judge anything. That will lead to tolerance. That will lead to acceptance because in that kind of philosophy, nobody could ever call anybody else wrong. That is thinking of much of the world today. That's what they would say. And so this teaching that we're looking at today, when the world looks at this language about a narrow gate or a narrow way, here's what they call it. They call it narrow-minded. That's, that's the way they would, 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 would say this. They would say it's unthinking. They would say it's irrational. They would say it's just blindly compliant to authority. It's intolerant. It's bigotry. Now, we have to confess as the people of God that because of the actions of the church at times across the centuries, we have to own that their description there at the end is true sometimes. Sometimes that is the way Christians have behaved towards the world. Now, one other thing about this topic that's interesting to me, when, when you really carefully examine both the life and the teachings of Jesus, there is a really incredible paradox. Really, really incredible paradox, especially for our culture, because they're, they're basically saying these two things cannot exist together. On the one hand, Jesus makes some radically exclusive statements, like, like John 17, 3. Jesus said this, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He said, there, there is a God, but there's, there's only one God, and he is the true God, which means all other gods are false gods. He's the only true God, Jesus says. Maybe more controversial, more famously, Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to God the Father 
except through me. And see, Jesus never presents his teachings as kind of like, you know, optional equipment. Uh, you know, he, 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 it's just, it's kind of all in. He claimed to know how things really are, what life is really all about. And he didn't just claim that it was wise. He claimed it was true, the truth. And Jesus claimed that that truth mattered more than almost anything else in the world if we wanted to get life right. And yet, this man who made these incredibly exclusive claims also simultaneously had these relational connections that were scandalously inclusive. I mean, Jesus did things with other people that nobody else would do in his day. Jesus touched, he, he touched an untouchable leper. In fact, if you go through and, and keep reading after the Sermon on the Mount, the very first thing Jesus does when he comes off the mount, he comes back down, we'll call it into the valley. The first thing that Jesus does in Matthew chapter 8, it says, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him, and behold, a leper came to him, knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. The Bible says that Jesus stretched out his hand, and Jesus touched him. Nobody else would dare have that kind of contact with a leper. In Luke chapter 7, there's this incredible story of Jesus allowing a known prostitute from the town that he was in at that time to bathe his feet with her tears and dry his feet with her hair. Not only was that action unheard of, but no, no Jewish man, no rabbi, no, no teacher of the word of God would have even been in the presence of a woman like that. Go back to chapter 8. You know what the second thing Jesus did after he came down from teaching the Sermon on the Mount? He heals this leper. The next thing he does, he has this incredible encounter with a hated Roman centurion. Jesus offered to go to his house to heal his servant. But the Roman centurion said, I don't need you to do that. I understand how spiritual authority works. And, and Jesus says about this, this Roman, hated Roman centurion, I have never seen faith like this anywhere among all the people of God. Never. This is incredible faith. If you flip over into Matthew chapter 9, you'll see Jesus going to a dinner party with sinners and tax collectors is how, how it was described by the religious leaders of that day. There's another uh, moment from the life of Jesus that is recorded in Luke chapter 17. And I want, I want us to read that one together. I want us to dig into it for just a moment. I think it's, I think it's important that we, we see this in, in its context. In Luke chapter 17, verse 11, it starts out this way. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. Samaritans and Galilean Jews, Galilee was a uh, if you would, a, a providence of, of Israel, the people of God. Samaritans were kind of like the enemies, if you would. They, the Jews and Samaritans absolutely hated each other. So Jesus is, Jesus is actually doing something that the normal Jews, they would go around Samaria. Jesus would pass through it. But it says he's, he's passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, it doesn't tell us whether this is a Samaritan village because Jesus did go to them. It doesn't tell us whether this is a Jewish village. It was just a village. It says, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance. 
and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. Priests is plural here. Please notice that. To, to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was um, he fell, giving thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. And Jesus said, answered and said, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now, the reason I wanted to turn to that and point some things out uh, in, in that particular account from Jesus' life, some of these are Jewish lepers. We know at least one was a Samaritan. And Jesus in this instance says, okay, go show yourselves to the priests. If you go back and you look at the other recorded instances when Jesus healed a leper, he said, always said, go show yourself to the priest, singular. This time he uses the plural. See, this time Jesus is healing lepers who, interestingly, had found community with one another, though they were from different kind of nationalities. It was a strange kind of mix and, and blend. And this particular leper, uh, they would have to go to a, a priest because in that day a priest was kind of like a doctor and he was the only person that could say, yes, you are cleansed, you can re-enter society, you can go back home, you can be in your family. And so when Jesus healed him, he would say, go to the priest. This time he says, priest, plural. Why do you think he uses that? Well, I think it's because there were two nationalities and there were actually two different religions present. Samaritans did not worship like Hebrews did. They didn't worship in the same location. And so when Jesus says priests, he was saying, Jewish people, I know you're going to go to your Jewish priest. And Samaritan, I know you're going to go to your priest. It's interesting to me that when Jesus healed them, he didn't demand that they suddenly follow the Jewish religion. It's almost like Jesus was, you know, he enters into this healing relationship with this unorthodox, non-Jewish leper who was kind of anathema as far as touching goes, and he actually sends them to their unique priests to be pronounced clean so they can re-enter society. Now, what's interesting to me about that kind of, you know, narrative, if you would, is it's obvious that Jesus thinks a relationship with him supersedes all human religion. A relationship with Jesus is better than any human religion. Now, it's also interesting to me that the narrower Jesus gets in his devotion to God his Father, and the narrower he devotes himself to the words of God, the more broad-minded Jesus gets in his love and his acceptance and his outreach to others, to sinners, to the disenfranchised. And that really is the big idea that I hope you grab hold of from this message today, and it's this that as Jesus lives and teaches 
a very narrow devotion to God and his word, he simultaneously broadens outreach through expressions of acceptance towards sinful and marginalized people. Now, the disciples that walked with Jesus when he walked this earth missed that. Just really missed it in huge ways. And guess what? Followers of Jesus today, we miss this. We really blow this so, so often. There is a research organization called Barna, and some people say, why do you love these research organizations? I love them because they help me see what people are saying they believe. And so a while back, the, research, the Barna Research Organization, you know, they, they, they've done some studies that have, have proven, even though they didn't need to, that we live in a very divided time, a very divided nation. But one of the studies that they did, um, it actually ended up leading to a book called Good Faith. It's a good, 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 good read. But they found that most Americans indicate that we have difficulty having a natural and normal conversation with people who are different than us, what might be considered minority groups, like, like Muslims, or atheists, or uh, LGBTQ community, or, or Mormons, or something like that. The study found that the group, interestingly, that had the hardest time in settings like that were evangelical Christians. I found that very interesting. That that group had the, the, the most difficult time. In, in fact, not only did, did the study show that evangelicals had difficulty there, they also had um, difficulty talking to other evangelical Christians who might be you know, slightly flavored differently denominationally. 28% of evangelicals said, I have a hard time. It's unnatural. It's not uh, comfortable for me to have a conversation with other evangelicals that differ from me slightly. It's just kind of fascinating. Now, you contrast that with Jesus. Jesus, the longest recorded one-on-one -on -one conversation Jesus had with somebody was with a Samaritan woman at a well. It's the longest one-on-one -on -one conversation that Jesus had with somebody was this, what, what, what might be considered this pagan Samaritan woman. And not only that, she had had five husbands she was currently shacking up with a guy who was not her husband. Friends, this is a woman that any other rabbi in Jesus' day would not have gotten near. He would, they would have walked on the other side of the street to avoid her. But when you look at Jesus and when you look at his followers today, by, by our own admission through hard research, it's just odd to think that the followers of the most inclusive man in all of history seem to have become the most excluding people in American society. And I think that causes us to, to need to stop and ponder. Why? Why? Why have the followers of the most inclusive man in history become the most excluding people in our nation? Why? Why, why has this happened? Now, interestingly, other studies that are done about evangelical Christians prove that we can be quite lax in our devotion to God and to his word. We 
don't really attend gatherings sometimes. We don't do life together. We don't regularly read his word or pray, you know, those kinds of things. We, we can be lax in our devotion, but we can be relentlessly narrow-minded in our relationships and attitudes towards people who are different than us. Jesus is just the opposite. He was relentlessly narrow in his devotion to God and very broad-minded in who he'd have relationships with. Why, why is this? Why was Jesus that way? Well, somebody might say, well, you know, he was just, he's kind of inconsistent. Maybe that's the answer to why. Or somebody might say, well, maybe he just wasn't really thinking very deeply about, about those kinds of things. Or maybe, just maybe, the truth that Jesus taught actually explains how he lived. Just, just maybe that the truth that Jesus taught actually explains why Jesus lived such a radically inclusive relational life. Maybe the truth that he taught is not intention. Maybe it explains it. Maybe, maybe the possibility of finding deep truth and offering really broad tolerance are not mutually incompatible. Maybe, they're, maybe they can be deeply joined together. And friends, this is an extremely important topic in our day because of the divisiveness of our world. Now, one of the things that you may have noticed when you think about uh, or hear uh, teaching these days about things like tolerance or narrow-mindedness, when, when we go through the Sermon on the Mount, we're, we're almost to the end. I know somebody's saying, yay, let's do something else. Um, I hope you're not saying that. But, uh, you know, one of the things I hope you've noticed, Jesus has never said yet, be therefore thou tolerant. Have you seen that? It, it, it's not in there. Well, and why do you think, if tolerance is such a big deal in our day, why don't you think Jesus might have said something about it? Well, here's what I think. Tolerance is low bar stuff. It's just low bar stuff. You know, our society has made a big deal of it. But tolerance itself, that's just low bar for kingdom living. You know, when, when my wife Kathy, when we got married, honey, you know, what I, one of the things I remember is when you were saying your part of your vows, you, you never said, I promise to tolerate you. In sickness and in health, you know, in good times or bad times, you know, to, to put up with you and endure until death sets me free of that. You know, you, you, you didn't just say you were going to tolerate me. Those of you who still maybe have little ones at home that you might tuck into bed at night, you know, very seldom do you hear a parent say, good night, good night, sweetie. I just tolerate you so much. Even if it had been a bad day, you know? We, we don't, when it's somebody's birthday, we don't sing, I tolerate you, I tolerate you, I'm stuck with your existence, what else can I do? Don't record that and play that for somebody that you think needs to hear that. Um, you know, to tolerating people is just low bar stuff. It's just, it's, 
you were not made by God to be tolerated. You were made by God to be celebrated. And we want that. Our heart longs for that. Because God designed you for that. We, we just kind of know that in our souls. And that's why Jesus doesn't say in the Sermon on the Mount, tolerate your enemies. He, he doesn't say just put up with those who persecute you. Jesus goes for something deeper. He doesn't say, you know, if you're, if you're at church and you're there giving your offering, you remember that, that somebody else has, has something against you, just tolerate them. He, he doesn't do that. He doesn't say if, you know, somebody forces you to go one mile, stop there. He says, go too. You know, please hear me, tolerance isn't evil. It, it can be a good thing. It's just not that much of, of a good thing. It doesn't go far enough. It only goes one mile. Jesus said in his kingdom, kingdom followers go too. Now, yeah, tolerance is better than intolerance, but it's still just, it's low-hanging fruit. You know, you can tolerate somebody and never love them. But you cannot love somebody and live intolerantly towards them. And Jesus, remember, he's inviting you into his kingdom where real life can be had. It's, it's spiritual reality. It's living reality, the sphere of God's will, where the primary law is not tolerance, it's love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemies. Now, love, yes, will include a measure of tolerance, but we got to ask, you know, why should we practice tolerance? Where's this whole idea? Because our culture is all about this now, tolerating one another. Where did it get the idea from? What's the foundation for that kind of thinking? You know, if, if this is going to be an enduring kind of rationale, it needs to have a foundation to stand on. In our day, you know, it's claimed that you know, people who have this idea of absolute truth are the people who lead us to hatred and to things like war. That instead of that, we need to practice charity. We don't need to have all these divisive beliefs. We need to practice charity and tolerance and accepting one another and not having all this division. But here's the deal. The claim that we need to tolerate one another is predicated upon the idea that everybody has equal dignity before each other. That everybody is worthy of dignity. It, it actually, that, you know, that, that this is true, that people are deserving uh, of tolerance. That, that's where that comes from. Well, let me ask you this. Where does the belief that everybody is created equally and is worthy of dignity come from? The first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, God said, let us create man in our own image. That's the only reason this idea of equality between people exists, because we were all created and we all bear the image of God. That's why intrinsically everybody is worthy of dignity. It is really the reason why this idea of tolerance has a leg to stand on. 
is rooted in the truth of God's word. You pull that idea out from this idea of tolerance, it has nothing to stand on. See, the cure for arrogant intolerance, you know, which leads to horrible sin, which truthfully we've said has infected the church at times, the, the, the cure is not lack of knowledge. The cure is not uncertainty about truth. Well, nobody can really know. That's not the foundation to build this on. The cure for intolerance and arrogance is humility. Humility. It is possible. I know you haven't met many people like this in our day, but it is possible to be right and humble. Well, how do you know that, Jeff? Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, it gives us a description of Jesus, the perfect human, the model for humanity. And it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ. it's yours, it's already yours if you're in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. Friends, you can be right and humble at the same time. You can also be uncertain and arrogant. Have you ever met somebody who just don't want to deal with, you know, the truth, but can just be as arrogant as they are about what they believe? I mean, it, it, it's kind of, kind of crazy. I, I, love this, I love this statement. This is a 100-year-old a quote. Sounds like it was written for our day. Um, it's found in a book called Orthodoxy by a guy by the name of G.K. Chesterton. If you've never read any, any of G.K. Chesterton's stuff, um, if you just go on and Google quotes by G.K., um, he was a Christ follower, but he was also brilliant, and some of his one-liners are just, just incredible just to read some of his quotes. But he writes in, in the book Orthodoxy, he says this, what we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. Modesty has moved from the organ of ambition Modesty has settled upon the organ of conviction where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but never doubtful or undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly, just exactly reversed. Now, in our culture, everybody seems to be sure about themselves. You know, we, we prize self-confidence. You know, we, we just prize that. But what we're not confident in is truth. We're unsure about what's true. Chesterton went on to say, we are on the road to producing a race of men too mentally modest to believe in a multiplication table. Just to believe that two times two equals four. Well, I mean, we're just, it, it's that ludicrous and crazy. All of this, while Jesus taught that the greatest foundation for tolerance and love resides in knowing God and living life in his kingdom. People should be prized because they're loved by God, they're created in his image. And because of that, people should be free. They, God gives people a will. God gives us our own little kingdom. We've talked about this, and God's desire is that we would bring our little kingdom that he has given us under his dominion, that we would want to bring it back to him. See, all of the things that this brings us to in this narrow gate is what Jesus is, is addressing 
in this text in Matthew 7, 13, and 14, which is really often understood, misunderstood. And so real quickly, I just want to tell you a couple of things that I think uh, what, what Jesus, when he says, uses this phrase, narrow gate, what it is not. Jesus is not, when he says narrow gate, intending that we be narrow-minded. Jesus is not intending that when we say the narrow gate, that he's not talking about doctrinal correctness. That's not what he's primarily talking about. It's not always about being right and everybody else being wrong. The narrow gate is not about religious intolerance. The narrow gate is doing what Jesus said to do to find life. The narrow gate is obeying, which is another word that's been really messed up in our society because we can obey creatively we can obey joyfully we can uh, obey not gritting our teeth but smiling see obeying the one who thoroughly not only as we talked about last week conquered death through his resurrection but also conquered life lived the greatest life that was was ever lived and see so obeying him in all things That's the narrow gate. The narrow gate is just simply doing what Jesus said do, while the broad gate is doing anything else. It's just doing anything else other than obeying what Jesus called us to do. It's just doing, you know, whatever you want to do, however you want to do it. The narrow gate is the gate, it's the way to freedom. Now, we, we forget this. There was another time that Jesus put it like this in John chapter 8 Jesus told it, it says this he said he told the people who had faith in him these were people who already believed in him he said if you keep on obeying what I have said you truly are my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free those words the last part of that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free you know where you can find that inscribed in our nation on the walls etched into lots of the walls in universities across our our country. Do you know what got excluded in most of those? The first part of that statement, if you obey my teaching. They like the last half. They like the, man, truth. You know truth. You get free. Not outside of the context of obeying Jesus and his teaching, which is the truth. They they exclude that part. See, we, we... our country, especially these days, we think restrictions rob us of freedom, but it is, it's exactly the opposite. I recall a, a story about a little girl. I think she was about four, if I remember the story correctly. She, um, her, her, little bro- or her older brother came home one day from school. He had won a prize, and it was a, a goldfish in a little tiny bowl. And um, a few days after her, her brother came home uh, with, this, with this fish, uh, the little girl loved the fish. And she felt sorry for the fish having to stay in that little bowl. So one day when her brother was out playing and her mother was distracted from other things, she went into her brother's room and she pulled the fish out and laid him down in the carpet so that the fish could be free. And go where no fish had gone before. Things did not turn out well for that fish. That fish did not, not, he didn't make it. He had been restricted, she thought, to this little bowl uh, uh, of water. That's what she saw it as, this restriction. But that was a fish's nature. 
He needed that water. See, freedom is not the absence of restraint and, you know, and restri- having restrictions. Freedom is simply finding the right restrictions to live within. See, true freedom in Jesus says that what we do is we swim in the moral and the spiritual reality of God and his kingdom. And that's what Jesus is teaching us in the Sermon on the Mount. If you obey my teaching, just like that fish, if you obey my teaching and stay in the restrictions of that, you'll swim in this life. You'll thrive. And, And this is the issue that Jesus is pushing from this point on to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. This, this, there's a big issue here, and it's culminating in this great, great question. And the question is one that I want to send you home pondering this week. And it's this, whose disciple will you be? Whose disciple will you be? A lot of people think, and a lot of people in churches think, that the church exists to make Christians. And that the definition of a Christian is somebody who believes the right things, so that a narrow-minded God may say, you can come into my heaven. That's kind of the mindset some have. Jesus never called anybody to become a Christian, to believe Christianity. Jesus called everybody to be his disciple, to be his follower. He called prostitutes and tax collectors and Roman centurions and Samaritans and lepers the most neglected people on the planet. And in Jesus' day, that word disciple wasn't a confusing term. It wasn't even really a religious term necessarily. A disciple was simply somebody who committed to follow somebody else so that they could become like that person. That just in its simplest, purest form. Now, here's the deal. The truth about everybody in this room, including me, we are all a disciple of somebody. Every last one of us, we're a disciple of somebody. You have learned from somebody how to do this thing called life. When a little baby's born, they learn how to walk and how to talk. Maybe how to read later on and how to spend their time, how to spend their money, how to best relate to others. Learn how what's What's, what's something worth sacrificing yourself for? We, we have all learned how to live. That's just part of the human condition. We're creatures who have to do that. We have to be disciple. Everybody is somebody's disciple. Usually at first it's your parents and maybe your siblings and your teachers, then maybe peers. Often in our day, unfortunately, it seems like it's you know celebrities and online communities and those kinds of things. But here's the deal, for better or worse, whether you're drifting into it or whether you're doing it intentionally, you just are somebody's disciple. And I am, we're just somebody's disciple. The question and the opportunity we have is to to look at who's our master? Who who is the one that we're, we're learning from? And today, maybe today, the Lord is calling all of us, I think, to re-examine who are we following, primarily. Who, who is teaching us what life is all about? And maybe we need to pause and decide we need to follow a better master. We need to follow the master of all masters. We have a, a statement around here 
about what a disciple is. Um, just real quickly, I'm going to cover it. Uh, it just simply says this. A disciple is, uh, of Jesus is one who is devoted to Jesus, uh, practically seeking to make each day a chance to be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, how to live the up and out life of Jesus. Now, I'm not going to unpack the details of that, but we believe that life is about being a disciple of Jesus. And so when Jesus is talking about this narrow way or this broad way, what he's talking about is life. He's not talking about narrow-mindedness. He's not talking about this brittle disposition of how right I can be. Jesus is just saying, friends, this is life. This is the way life is. If you want it to be free to make great music, well, you'll have to arrange your life around practicing, around learning chords and, and scales and, you know, study. If you decide, I want to be free to be a great athlete, you've got to arrange your life around weightlifting and drills and being coached. If you're an alcoholic and you want to arrange your life around sobriety, then you've got to arrange your life around surrendering your will and going through something like a 12-step strategy and getting a sponsor and people that you'll submit to and, and then helping other people. The narrow way to life is that you, have, you receive power through a vision, a vision that empowers you. And you can do that whether it's playing a piano or whether it's, you know, athleticism or trying to be sober or trying to live like Jesus, trying to live as, as he lived. See, that's the narrow way. And that vision of a life devoted to Jesus, following Jesus, gives us power. The broad way is just doing anything else. Just getting sucked into doing anything else. Whatever you feel like doing, most often what the rest of the world is doing. And here's what Jesus says, many take that way. He says many go that broad way just doing what the rest of the world is doing. Just kind of drifting along doing that. See, when, when Jesus says that, He's not predicting how many people are going to end up in heaven. And he is certainly not saying that God is glad it's going to be a small number. It's just going to be a few. Friends, the Bible says that God, he, he's not willing that any should perish. That's what it says in 2 Peter chapter 3. He's not, he, he wants everyone to come to saving knowledge, to repentance. So Jesus is not, he's not just saying the, the broad way. Is a you know about who's going to make it to heaven. He's saying that this Broadway idea is kind of the default mode of most people on the planet. See, generally people just we just drift, and and this is the question. This is the question that we have to face. Have have you become a disciple of Jesus? Are you walking through that narrow gate? See, it's a decision. Are you living? the way Jesus would live if he were given your life? Is that, is that the way you're living? Is following Jesus top shelf priority for you? Or are you a disciple of something else? Security. Retirement. Money. Your image. An addiction. What, what, what are you a disciple of? And this is so crucial. And this is, 
This is the urgency that Jesus drives home the closing part of this Sermon on the Mount. And I want us to leave kind of thinking about this today. How can we practice this? This promise that if we'll walk the narrow gate, this narrow way of obedience, it's the best road to take. Well, I want to I promise you something. That if you'll do that, you'll never walk that road alone. You'll, it'll, you'll never be alone. The Holy Spirit will always be with you. Look at what it says in 1 John 2. It says, but you have received the Holy Spirit. If you know Jesus, you've received the Holy Spirit. He lives within you. And the Spirit teaches you everything you need to know. And what he teaches you is true. So through prayer, through time in God's word, through being with one another and, 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 and sharing in these things, Jesus is always present. You'll never be alone on the narrow way. Never. And it'll do something else for you. I want to close with a story that I, I read recently. It was about uh, a, a young man who was kind of uh, a thrill-seeking young man. Um, he, he was, you know, that bungee jumping, hang gliding type, you know, kind of mountain climbing kind of guy. Um, he went uh, cave exploring, uh, sp spelunking, I think is the way they call it. And uh, I, I read his description of this. I'm shortening it, I promise. Um, but he basically talked about a, a buddy of his who was kind of an expert in this area and had told him about this incredible, beautiful cavern uh, at the end of this cave that you go through. And he said, the cave's kind of narrow. And so the guy said, sign me up. And so they go, and they, they start walking in the cave. And as the further into the cave they go, they finally had to start crouching down. And uh, after a while, it got so narrow, the passage did, it, that they had to get on their hands and knees and crawl. And then it narrowed even more. And if you're claustrophobic, I'm sorry, it's just going to come. But eventually, they had to kind of get on their backs and kind of scoot their way uh, through this. And the thing narrowed so much at one point, he, the, his description was, he would have to exhale, scoot a few inches, take a breath. Exhale, scoot a few inches, take a breath. He said he didn't have to do that long, but he had to do it. And he said the only thing that kept him going, because the cave was dark, you know, was his friend's voice saying, don't worry about the dark, don't worry about the cave, don't worry about the narrow passage, just follow my voice. Just follow my voice. He said that was the only way that he... He could go just listening to that voice. If you're here today, and right now you feel like your life is in a cave that has been narrowing, and that you feel a little stuck in some places, you have a friend who is the most prominent expert on how to live life. And his name is Jesus. And he has promised that he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will always call out to you. He will always lead you if you will let him be your master disciple. But you and I get to decide. We get to decide who we're going to be discipled by. Jesus wants to be there for you. But we have, we have to let him. So this week, when you're thinking about whose disciple am I, I want to encourage you to think about Jesus, making Jesus, maybe remaking Jesus your master disciple. And so maybe sometimes this week, grab your Bible 
If you don't have a Bible, we will give you one before you leave here today if you'll ask for one. And read the Sermon on the Mount. Just start reading it over and over again. And sometime during the week, when you have an opportunity to do something that it says, just do it. Just, just simply, simply obey it. And start making your fundamental identity that I am a disciple of Jesus. That, that's who I am. I am I'm a follower of, of, of Jesus. And remember that when you're going through that narrow way, you have one who has gone before you, who is your friend, who is calling you along, no matter how dark or how difficult it gets. And he's the King of kings, and he's the Lord of lords, and he is the master of life, and he overcame death through his resurrection. And he's the one that wants to give you real life. Let's pray. Father God, we come in these moments to give, to give thanks, to thank you that, Jesus, you, you love us, that we are people who were made with dignity in mind because of you, and that, Jesus, you have given us a way to life that is not only rooted in truth of reality and the best way to live, but you, in, in giving us that, have given us the best foundation for loving others, even people who are different than us. And Jesus, we thank you that when we say you're the hope of the world, that reality unfolds. And we can see that it is possible to be humble and yet devoted to your truth. That we can be exclusive in our devotion to you and inclusive to every segment of our world, to every person on this planet. Thank you, Jesus, that's who you are, that you, you are the dis kind of master disciple we want to follow. So we pray that you will disciple us in life in your kingdom. We choose again this day, so many of us, we recalibrate on who we're a disciple of. And we rededicate ourselves to choosing you Jesus, just you alone. Maybe you're here today and for the very first time. Maybe you were here last Sunday for Resurrection Sunday and you heard about this opportunity to step into new life. And now you've heard about the kind of life that he wants to give you. He wants to be the one you follow, the one you give your life to so that you can have freedom, real life, as God intended it to be. You can then be someone who can change the world one life at a time by telling them about this Jesus that you've found. But we come now, Jesus. In whatever way, any decision we need to make, we come now declaring that it's in you alone. That our life is in you alone. We want our life in you alone. We, we come back again to worship you, surrendering our lives to be discipled by you. So teach us, Jesus. Lead us now as we worship you. In you alone. It's in your name we pray. And all God's people say.